Section 3 of Camden's Compliments to Walt Whitman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Addresses Invocation J. Leonard Corning Thanks to the Father of all for the light and inspiration of genius and virtue. Thanks for great and mighty souls, the gifts of heaven to all the ages of time. All praise to the Father for guiding words of truth and the sweet bonds of friendship and affection. Thanks for this hour of gratulation, calling its greetings from home and distant lands. Let the Father's benediction be upon our honored and beloved guest and upon all our hearts and households. Amen. Samuel H. Gray, Camden Welcome. Gentlemen, I have been selected by the Committee of the Citizens of Camden, who have had the matter in charge to act as President upon this occasion, and upon me, as President, has devolved the agreeable duty of expressing in your behalf toward the guest of the evening whom we are here to entertain, and who by his presence bestows upon us as high an honor as we could ever receive, a cordial welcome. We, as citizens of Camden, the workman from his shop, the merchant from his counting-room, the lawyer from his office, even the preacher from his pulpit, nay, more, the judge from his court, all sorts and conditions of men, come here together as fellow citizens of this town this evening to welcome the most distinguished citizen not only of this town, but of this state. Distinguished not as a soldier, not as a merchant, not as an accumulator of wealth, not as an orator whose silver tongue a senate sways, not as a preacher who admonishes when we do wrong and sometimes sets us an example to do right, but as a man among men whose heart beats in unison with the great heart of humanity. Generous, brave, disinterested, honest, sincere, all manly qualities, are here impersonated in our guest. Patriotic, in his younger manhood, he made sacrifices for his country, from the effects of which he yet suffers. Honest, he has lived to a green old age, poor in purse, but rich in every quality and in every endowment which makes manhood excellent. As a poet, his rugged verse rises above the dead level of ordinary literature as a majestic mountain rises above a plain. This man with these qualities, social, personal, intellectual, we are here this evening to greet. He is here by his presence to bestow upon us an honor. It gives me pleasure, gentlemen, speaking for you and in your behalf, to extend to our townsmen a cordial welcome, which words better than mine could frame or phrase. I greet him as the honored guest of his fellow citizens on this, his seventieth birthday. Walt Whitman responded briefly. See page five. Thomas B. Harned, Camden. Our fellow citizen. In the year 1873, Walt Whitman came to the city of Camden, old, poor, and paralyzed. 
he had no thought then that his life would be continued to its present stage. His best years had been devoted to the sacred duty of nursing the sick and wounded soldiers in the army hospitals at Washington. No tongue can tell the extent of that ministry. With untiring devotion, vigilance, and fidelity, without fee or reward, he served his country in the hour of her greatest need. The history of the Secession War presents no instance of nobler fulfillment of duty or sublimer sacrifice. But the stalwart and majestic physique had to succumb to the terrible strain. The man whom we here honor came among us to spend his last days with those who were near and dear to him. His physical and spiritual condition at this time is best pictured in his own language. My terminus near, the clouds already closing in upon me, the voyage balked, the course disputed, lost, I yield my ships to thee. My hands, my limbs grow nerveless, my brain feels racked, bewildered. Let the old timbers part, I will not part. I will cling fast to thee, O God, though the waves buffet me. Thee, thee, at least I know. But the old timbers did not part. The old ship had been built too strongly. Rest in the ministrations of loving friends prolonged his life, and for more than fifteen years he has been our most distinguished citizen. It is not my purpose to speak on this occasion of Walt Whitman's books or of his place in literature. On that field he has baffled all classification. While every epithet of rancor and opprobrium has been heaped upon his published writings, no man ever had truer friends. The controversy which he has unconsciously provoked in the literary world is probably without a parallel. Only now are we beginning to realize the importance of his life work and the grandeur of the man. The person Walt Whitman is greater than his book, or any book. He is made of that heroic stuff which creates such books. He himself is the great epic of the senses, the passions, the attributes of the body and soul. Dear as he is to America and her democracy, he yet belongs to the whole world. He declares the perfection of the earth, its fruitful soil, its navigable seas, its majestic mountains, its forests, all created things. His love for the aggregate race is intense and boundless. His sense of the universal is sublime. He is the greatest living optimist. He is the incarnation of naturalism. He knows neither convention nor hypocrisy. His cheerfulness is like a perpetual ray of sunshine. His kind and generous heart beats responsive to life wherever found. This is the kind of man we have had among us for many years. How we like to speak of his gentleness, his charity, his wisdom, his simplicity, of his majestic figure cast in an antique mold, his ruddy countenance, his inspiring voice, his strong and classic face. We have seen him on our streets, or frequenting the ferry boats, or driving over the neighboring roads. His companions have been from every walk of life, more especially from among the poor and the plain. He has taken a personal interest in the welfare of mechanics, deckhands, car drivers. 
no class has escaped his attention, his affection. Roughs, the criminal, the neglected, the forgotten, have been equally included. In nothing does he show his simplicity as in his love for children. They all know him. There is that about him which draws and holds them. And yet he is visited by persons of prominence from all parts of the world. This city today is known to thousands of persons in distant lands, merely because it is the home of Walt Whitman. Emerson says that the knowledge that in the city is a man who invented the railroad raises the credit of all the citizens. It has so proved with us. Our citizenship is raised because in our city lives the author of Leaves of Grass. I deem it a great privilege to pay Walt Whitman the tribute of my respect. It has been my good fortune to be counted among his personal friends, and I desire to emphasize with great clearness my conviction that every moment of his life tallies with the teachings proclaimed throughout his books. He is eminently consistent. He does not bend the knee to wealth or power. To him the ragged urchin is as dear as the learned scholar. We who know him best know that he assumes nothing. In him nature has ample play. He has taken the rough with the smooth, and in his sorest trials has not been heard to utter a complaint. I do not believe that there ever lived a man less restricted by his environment. He cares neither for praise nor censure, ever journeying the even tenor of his way. Let the day bring forth health or sickness, pleasure or pain, gain or loss, with a peace that passes all understanding, he says, it is all right anyhow. They who have listened to the magic of his magnetic voice and have shared his simple prophetic conversation, which is a university in itself, know how careful he is not to speak ill of anyone. He never indulges in carping criticism. His wit is gentle and bright, and never carries a heart-stain on its blade. Frugal in his habits, he has always expended upon himself the smallest amount possible, in order that he might aid others whom he deemed more needy. His charity is divine. But I cannot enter into any detailed analysis of Walt Whitman's character. It is a familiar story to many here. For the last year we have heard and known how his life has hung in the balance. Little did we suppose that he could withstand his latest sickness and be with us today. How can I hope to utter what so fills our hearts as we come together here? We all say we have known him. Have any of us known him? Does not such a life baffle our understanding? We have assembled on this spot today to honor him, to look upon his radiant, serene face, and to thank him for the lesson he has taught us and will continue to teach to coming races. His life work is finished. He awaits the end with complacency. The consecration is complete. We crown him poet, prophet, philosopher, the incarnation of modern humanity. Camden will be best known and honored because it has known and honored Walt Whitman. Succeeding generations will do him reverence, and the little frame house on Mickle Street 
will be a shrine toward which pilgrims will travel in their adoration of him as one of the world's immortals. Genius, says Macaulay, is like the peak of Tenerife, which catches the beams of the morning sun an hour before the rest of the world. From that high eminence, as the end draws near, with a faith in immortality which is abiding and sublime, Walt Whitman beholds the vision of the future. As if some miracle, some hand divine, unsealed my eyes. Shadowy vast shapes smile through the air and sky, and on the distant waves sail countless ships, and anthems in new tongues I hear saluting me. Herbert Harlockenden Gilchrist Hampstead, London, England Friends Across the Seas How can my arms lift the pennant that floats proudly over the British Empire and unfurl its heavy folds in the wild summer evening of this inimitable occasion? How can the inarticulate voice of an artist salute the poet, strike the note, utter the message of respect and love from the toiling masses, the philosophers and scholars of democratic and intellectual Great Britain. I ask you gently to hear, kindly to judge my speech. Peace out my imperfections with your thoughts. Think when I talk of England's men and women that you see them, for tis your thoughts that now must deck our poet. It is true that I was born and have lived amongst the courageous handful of undaunted men and women who first greeted Walt Whitman and the publication of Leaves of Grass with a ringing cheer of welcome, a handful that has grown into hundreds of thousands and which is still spreading under the influence of that heavenly force. The great master's voice has moved to distant continents. O oh, waters, I have fingered every shore with you. That melody of life with its cunning tones has swept across the Atlantic, entered the thatched cottage and ivy-grown moat-encircled grange, invaded the universities, and within the girdle of those antique and moss-grown walls of Oxford and Cambridge, the don and undergraduate have been stirred by the poems which glow with life. The immortal reverberations floated east, south, west, and north till the waves struck the thoughts of workmen, toilers at Sheffield, Newcastle, and Glasgow including all of Scotland and Ireland. Our guest can picture in his mind's eye the sagacious, good-natured glance which shines upon him today from beneath soot-begrimed brows and smirched faces of brawny colliers, powerful smiths, and mechanics. Walt Whitman, whose pieces have strengthened and sweetened the lives of the people, has moved the aristocrat whose soul has expanded under the influence of the poet's great heart. Thought cannot be walled out by caste or the mask of materials, 
and the sweeping voice of the bard has taken captive ear and heart some of the true men and women throughout the length and breadth of the United Kingdom. Noble women of Great Britain have shown by pen and speech to our warped and blunted masculine natures the spiritual meaning and religious fervor which shine through and illuminate the leaves in leaves of grass. The prosperity of this occasion forces upon my memory an expression that our guest made to myself during darker, less happy times. He said, No magic incident of hair's breath escape in the fairy queen surpassed the resuscitation of myself from the perils of death by brave champions in 1876. That movement was the turning point of my fortunes. They had been gloomy, ebbing, and waning for nearly ten years, and the storing and filling of my pockets to supply the personal needs and necessities of life, which had got to be at that time in the slough and very sink of perdition. This magic lift, as in old legends, of warm support and cheering responses from the big fellows, from Alfred Tennyson, Lord Houghton, William Michael Rossetti, Algernon Charles Swinburne, Robert Buchanan, and Edward Carpenter, was accomplished by my British friends, who sprang into the breach and plucked me from the perils and jaws of death. As Harry Hotspur would, Dive into the bottom of the deep, where fathom-lined could never touch the ground, and pluck up drowned honor by the locks. Consideration like an angel came in time, and this philosopher, who has given the world so much, has king-like shown us how a man should take the world's stray offerings. The proud poet triumphantly emerges from beneath the base black cloud of contumely and neglect and insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, passes through this ugly rack and shows us by his pride of port his sail of greatness. Your Washington, Jefferson, and Monroe have given you emphatic warnings against entangling alliances with any European people or any foreign people. But there is a power and faculty in the race. Adhesiveness is the phrenological term. Magnetic friendship and goodwill of the common humanity of all nations that they would certainly have encouraged and which all good publicists would ever encourage. Of this faculty, Leaves of Grass is the book, and Walt Whitman is the poet, beyond any hitherto known. He scatters it, not only through all the states of this immense and veriform union, but all the lands and races of the globe. America, to him, stands really greater in that than in all its wealth, products, and even intellect. By him, poetry is to be its main exemplar and teacher. Thus, the succor which rescued your great one was not the work of individuals. No, 
nor should it be viewed as the friendly privilege and monopoly of the mother country. The fair action was rather a compliment to the pride of America from the British Isles as typifying the brotherliness of men and in cementing a larger guild of literature than the world has hitherto known. Thirteen summers ago I first met our guest. Today I find myself standing within the sunshine of the poet's eye. In behalf of and for the faithful sons and daughters of the British Isles and the friends across the seas, I wish Walt Whitman, who sits honored and surrounded with troops of friends, many happy returns of the day. Francis Howard Williams, Germantown, Past and Present The history of all truly great movements is a chronicle of long injustice and of final triumph. When Wordsworth raised the standard of revolt against the formalism of the school of Pope, he brought down upon his head the vials of English literary wrath, and not until he was an old man did he conquer a recognition and win the just reward of his heroism. For years and years Walt Whitman has been the standard-bearer in a movement no less important than that against the English classical school. For years and years he has borne calumny and misrepresentation from a public which utterly failed to understand him, and from certain exclusive coteries which willfully failed to do so. People vilified him, and when he could not answer they searched the leaves of grass to find the ground of an accusation. They said that he was a sensualist, taking no thought of the spiritual essence and spiritual needs of humanity, but they found written in leaves of grass, I am the poet of the body, and I am the poet of the soul. And throughout the book the soul is celebrated equally with the body, the mind equally with the heart, the spirit equally with the sense. They found it an essential part of the poet's work to so celebrate them, just as he celebrates the female equally with the male in depicting the perfect personality of man. When these people accused him of infidelity, although they read in his book that a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels, again they accused him of being a gross materialist, finding, doubtless, much beauty in external nature, but failing to recognize the power behind it all. He was a pantheist, with vision blinded to the higher spiritual insight. But there, in the sixth section of the Song of Myself, stood that surpassingly lovely passage. A child said, What is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition, out of hopeful green stuff woven. Or I guess it is the handkerchief of the Lord, a scented gift and remembrancer designedly dropped, bearing the owner's name some way in the corners, that we may see and remark and say, Whose? Literature contains no finer recognition of an eternal power not ourselves which makes for righteousness, and let me say incidentally no finer example of a delicate sense of verbal melody. 
and so it has gone on. There has been a deal of howling and conventional shuddering, a deal of holding up the hands in shocked amazement, the dear people all the while forgetful of the fact that in reading Whitman they were looking into a clear mirror which showed them the reflection of themselves, and which didn't make them look prettier simply because the mirror wasn't cracked. And amid all the vituperation the poet has calmly said, I do not trouble my spirit to vindicate itself or be understood. I see that the elementary laws never apologize. Today there are signs that the vindication has come, and in the right way, from without. It has come from those compelled hereto by the working out of inexorable truth. Speaking for Philadelphia, I am sure that whatever there is of a literary movement there tends more and more towards the acceptance of at least the fundamental principles and basic meanings of the leaves of grass, towards a recognition of the fact that all true things are beautiful to him who sees aright. You of Camden can claim Walt Whitman for your own but you must let us of the bigger town across the river have a share in him because we are now beginning to deserve it. Such a gathering as this is a pleasant sign of the times. We feel that in striving to honor Walt Whitman we are doubly honoring ourselves, and we know with all the certainty of a fixed conviction that his fame will rest securely on that high plane achieved by his utterance of a great message. John Herbert Clifford, Germantown Prophet and Bard Isaac Taylor, now thirty years dead, wrote, Human nature utters itself with passion. But yet it is not a false utterance. It is a true, though an impetuous, vaticination. For vaticination we say prophecy, but no more to tell the God's will, nor the particular future. The word points straight through all localisms to universal meanings. And prophet here and now means to us a voice of human nature, passionate and true, and of the universal soul, not echo of tribal God for peculiar people. Oracles are dumb. Hebrew line, grand in its day, spokesmen all of positive faiths, grow faint when speaks the universe by the mouth of its holy prophet. Great lispings there were, articulations worthy of the man-child's dream of his coming stature. All must be gathered up into the vaster music of a race larger grown. We claim no single or preeminent voice. All the world is witness. But the greatening spiritual content brings its able utterers. Sit we not here with one of these? In the volume of the book it is written, and in the volume of the faithful years, leaves of grass, immortal with thought, leaves of life as deathless in the days, specimen days of the living and the loving soul. Green be his November boughs. No sands at seventy can sterilize this soil, 
No carping unfastens the collect of comrades and brotherhood bond of man. Not much, yet in familiar questions Whitman is quoted, familiar in the plagiary's euphemism, unconscious absorption, when gatherers shall come with bees, instinct for flowers, anthologies will bloom with his name. No seven cities war to claim his birth, though seven hundred deny the bread of just fame. Happy that one city of title undisputed. For not much longer can his credentials be questioned. Do you hear some still asking, is he a poet? Bring Charles Lamb's candle and look at their heads. Wide consent may be withheld until his crown is on, and some recoil is claimed from early recognitions. The son of Emerson, in a little book about his father, plants a footnote of disparagement based upon alleged confessions of the Concord sage, who found leaves of grass the most extraordinary piece of wit and wisdom that America has yet contributed, and greeted its author at the beginning of a great career, which yet must have had a long foreground somewhere for such a start. This it would seem, Emerson inclined to take back, disappointed of his expectations. But what he had written, he had written. Retraction were self-recoil, no more. For Emerson, no word but reverence here. Yet, alas, for prophet's faithfulness to prophet, Whitman too coarse for the expounder of Montaigne and Shakespeare and Goethe. But the fatal sentence is that this catalogue style of poetry is easy and leads nowhere. But are there not other catalogues in poetry? In the Iliad, some of the various outfits for limited operations, though they do lead somewhere, is it the rub that Whitman's catalogues lead everywhere? Perhaps it is at the catalogues that old Homer nods. If so, shall not other Homers nod, and their readers as well? But does our poet look a nodder? Gaze not at him here, but in that morse head of him See if there be not rather the countenance of an elder god with eyes that look straight on and never wink. Transcender of transcendentalists. German, English, New England transcendentalism. Deportations of a spirit to high exile of the chosen cult, sending back too radiant for common eyes celestial visions. Archbishop Whatley religiously placed Emerson in the magic lanthorn school of writers, their object, as they see themselves must confess, merely to elevate and surprise. Blind enough, yet dimly hinting want of a completing practical power 
in ideal philosophy to seize and hold man's actual life. In Emerson that power appears, spite of infinite refinements, yet needing mediators for the multitude. But Whitman should be his own mediator, even to runners who read. Those very catalogues are hooks that fasten him to life. Although transcendental, he is not less immediate to men. Thoughts to lift them, sympathy to comfort, brother love to cheer, he gives all these. Samuel Johnson of Salem, whose transcendentalism held all science and practical ethics, drew Theodore Parker, transcendentalism's great warrior saint, with the wise head of Socrates and the warm, loving heart of Robert Burns. Lend this likeness to our poet. Is it not as fit? His philosophy comes down from the heaven of select souls to grasp the hand of man the Democrat. His dreams refresh men from their toil. They turn drudgery to song. Serenest, sanest optimism that reckons with ugliness and ills. What believing of men already here, what heralding of better men to come. Complete American, pictured in the book, prefigured as in Lincoln's character, chanted in his requiem, with grandeur and tenderness sung, and in the American soldier, fortunate to die and be in proud remembrance here. And not alone the finished American, he sings the perfect man, knows him the adding up of works. Is not here some first shaping of the epic of humanity, hitherto writ, but in fragments of time and place, broken tales of love and woe, one day to be written full, written as lived by man. Dante and Danton, the sayer and the doer, heaven and hell and earth, the past, the present, the future, revolution, evolution, all shall be in its mighty sweep. The poet who takes idealism down into the doing of that greatest reverence of Goethe's, of Jesus, too, and Paul's, and Fourier's, and John Brown's. Reverence for the lives below is needed to carry man out to the universe and up to God. For he does not fear to say God. Voltaire said that if God did not exist, man must invent him. And some who say not God do say almost as good, say what is better than any invented God. Our poet teaches what Thoreau prayed. May I love and revere myself above all the gods that man has ever invented. Old concern to take care of God goes with modern prompting to care for man. Take care of man, and God will take care of himself and of men's substitutes for him. Whitman's God is cosmic, 
the daring poet who sings himself a cosmos has not far to seek his god nor lacks for equal mind to celebrate the gifts of life and death fulfiller for his part is he of the poetic past and continuator to the future of olympian bards who sung divine ideas below which always find us young and always keep us so i heard that one of whitman's contemporaries himself a grave writer and sometimes morose found our poet too serious i knew a young fellow of wild genius who one day waylaid carlyle in his walk and soon had him dismissing philosophers each to his own place hegel he doomed for heaviness but my youth replied you could hardly expect atlas with the world on his shoulders to dance a jig and our atlas poet with cosmos in his brain must needs leave sportive moods to humorists yet are not all humors there veining his world with infinite variety after reading hegel whitman wrote roaming in thought over the universe i saw the little that is good steadily hastening towards immortality and the vast all that is called evil i saw hastening to merge itself and become lost and dead yes serious that and high so is he in all above suspicion of obscene or impure and they who tax him with such offence bring their defilement with them he has no doubt the faults of his own qualities he cannot be smirched with theirs so serious and great i deem it no extravagance to think our prophet bard that carlyle's praise of the book of job might well be given to his one of the grandest things ever written with a pen such a noble universality different from noble patriotism or sectarianism reigns in it all men's book grand in its sincerity its simplicity in its epic melody and repose of reconcilement true insight and vision for all things material things no less than spiritual sublime sorrow sublime reconciliation oldest choral melody soft as the heart of mankind so soft and great as the summer midnight as the world with its seas and stars no singer of times and clans of courts and games and loves and wars of places he is prophet of universal life and bard of the cosmic epos he gives new words to the dictionary new darings and achievement to literature single-handed hero in the peaceful war how calmly he abides the issue repelling blows with benedictions and treacheries with childlike trust homer perhaps is many and shakespeare who knows but here indubitably is one and like wisdom of old remaining in himself 
he maketh all things new. What frets and jars in the world of letters are soothed to calm in the all-accepting bosom of his cheerful faith. No come-outer, jealous of other come-outers, lest they be frightfuller than himself. Not one of Hawthorne's come-outers, eating no solid food, but living on the scent of other people's cookery. Not come-outer at all, because never gone in. What are little systems to the seer of all? We love Emerson, an iconoclast without a hammer. We love also the right iconoclast with his hammer, the very hammer of Thor, for idle mountains which its smiting alone can bring down. Every prophet and reformer is his own species, like the schoolman's angel. But was ever hammer as heavy with blows as strong as Whitman's, so noiselessly swung like God's greatest weights upon their smallest wires. Luther, Cromwell, Parker, Garrison, and sturdy smiters still bringing down the strongholds of superstition and wrong. How their mighty strokes resound! But see this valiant striker break the prison walls of custom and error all silently opening man's soul to the day. Some five-and-forty years ago Elizabeth Barrett wrote to a New England friend, We have one Shakespeare between us, your land and ours, and one Milton, and now we are waiting for you to give us another. But why another Shakespeare or Milton? One of a kind will do. We indeed give you another poet, but he is his own kind, sui generis, not for one land, nor two, but for all the lands and times. Lesser bards have waited their centuries to be known, and he can wait, for the centuries can wait for him. Cast forth thy word into the ever-living, ever-working universe. It is a seed grain that cannot die. Unnoticed today, it will be found flourishing after a thousand years. This, of another seer, is likewise our poet's faith. Well has he kept it, and nobly leaves it to mankind. All, all for immortality. Love like the light silently wrapping all, nature's amelioration blessing all, the blossoms, fruits of ages, orchards divine and certain, forms, objects, growths, humanities to spiritual images ripening. Give me, O God, to sing that thought. Give me, give him or her I love this quenchless faith. In thy ensemble, whatever else withheld, withhold not from us. Belief in the plan of thee enclosed in time and space. Health, peace, salvation, universal. End of section three.